Hey friends, I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. Greetings and salutations again. Somehow we get to use the same opening that we use for Heather's. If you go read the IMDb trivia notes for Demolition Man, they did it on purpose. It's amazing. This movie, Anna. I love it. When did you first watch Demolition Man? I first watched Demolition Man on TV probably in the late 90s. Yeah, I first watched it two nights ago. I didn't even know it was a a movie (laughs) until you told me that we, we had to watch it. I mean, it has not become a cultural touchstone except for one thing, which we will discuss later. Oh my god, okay. But as a terrible action movie, it's pretty good. Still holds up. I had fun. I was never a fan of Sylvester Stallone. I was more of an Arnold Schwarzenegger fan at that time. I thought this movie was going to go much like a Through the Eye scenario. It was going to be something like that, but it wasn't. I would say that it was one of the more positive experiences in re-watching, watching for the first time that I've had since we started this episode. I actually did really enjoy the movie. I like how every time we watch something that I love from like the 90s or before, you go, is this going to be as painful as when Renee made me read Through the Ice? Exactly. That is our touchstone. So Demolition Man came out in 1993 and it stars Sylvester Stallone. Sandra Bullock and Wesley Snipes. Also Benjamin Bratt and Dennis Leary. There are a lot of people in here that I had forgotten were in here. And I'm just like, wow, hello. Hello to you. This is kind of, sort of, a time travel movie. Sort of. Uh, that's pushing it. If you have like a spectrum of time travel, like at the very, like at the very end, like over at the very edge of like, what could legitimately be called a time travel movie, this would be on the edge. I'll allow it. Thank you. You may proceed. <laughs> okay, so this movie was made in 1993, but the movie imagined this future. From 1993, when this was made, they imagined 1996, where LA is apparently a war zone now. We have approved cryogenic freezing of human beings. As a prison People there are convicted of crimes. They are frozen. They undergo therapies for rehabilitation. When the time comes for them to go on a parole, they are defrosted, interviewed, and maybe released into the world or refrozen. Seems traumatic. When we started this movie and they were freezing Sylvester Stallone because he had been framed for killing a a bunch of hostages by uh, Simon Phoenix, P.S., best villain name. The way they freeze the people is just so inefficient. And you can tell that men wrote this movie because it's just so inefficient. It makes way more sense to, like, put them laying straight. Yes. Takes up less space, more comfortable. I was like, wait, is the freezing process supposed to be traumatic? Is that part of the punishment? Well, I guess it is because they are part of the punishment, I guess, which is very inhumane. Seems like wouldn't be legal. That's a line in this movie, right? What is legal and what's illegal? Looking at US prison systems now, they're all garbage. 
this dark future of 1996 where you can cryogenically freeze people who were bad. It's just like a common practice used on criminals. And then what happens then? It creates a utopian society after that. And then you jump another 30 years in the future in which the future is an utopia paradise where there is no crime. Police are basically security guards. They're security guards who apparently police your language. Several things have been forbidden, including sex, but this is for the betterment of society. And in this future, then they defrost John Spartan so that he can go after the criminal that put him there in the first place, Simon Phoenix, who himself was defrosted because of a devious plan of the man who runs everything. Dr. Cocteau uses the prison system to his advantage because every prisoner is given a rehabilitation program subconsciously while they're frozen. He decides that because in the society there's still these like underground people loosely led by Edgar Friendly, played by Dennis Leary. Dr. Cocteau is like, mm, I got to get rid of this Edgar Friendly guy. He's no, he's no good. Not, not helping my, not helping my cause to take over California. Because nothing is said about the outside world. We don't know what's happening outside. That's true. I'm sort of thinking that like the rest of the world's going on as normal, and this little pocket of California has. They're like those people are fucking crazy. Stay away. They'll put you on ice. That's a good hacker. So Dr. Cocteau thaws Simon Phoenix, but not before giving him a rehabilitation program in quotes that teaches him all these scary criminal tactics. So Simon Phoenix can go after Edgar Friendly, kill Edgar Friendly, scatter the, what I would call, economic refugees from this really creepy, quote-unquote, utopian society, and continue his takeover of California. Once these two men from the past are awakened in the future... It's through their eyes that we see this society and realize that the utopia is actually a dystopia. And uh, it's through their commentary, not only uh, Simon Phoenix's, but also John Spartan's commentary on what's going on around them that we realize how fucked up things really are. There's some humor in it, obviously, because, you know, how wouldn't there be with the two of them waking up in the future and seeing things so different? Like, for example, the fact that part of Jones Patton's rehabilitation process was that he needed to learn how to knit. Listen, I had a problem with that part of the storyline. I knew you would love. He was rehabilitated to know how to knit and sew. And he was like, I'm a seamstress. And I'm like, yeah, how terrible. You can tell men wrote this movie because here we go. Men undermining fiber arts. These fucking guys probably wouldn't even know how to do a basic garter stitch. Fuck off, dudes. And also, for example, when Friendly is having his discourse of the things that he wanted to do, all of them are highly individualistic things, very macho-like things. Like, I just want to go run naked around, drink a beer, eat meat, and shoot, and smoke a cigar. I'm pretty sure they had written lines for Edgar Friendly, but they threw them out because Dennis Leary just made up his own ones. So he wasn't really being Edgar Friendly at that point. He was just being Dennis Leary. He was very big in the comedy circuit, and he was very well known for his rants. I remember him better as like a comedian who did like ranty comedy than as an actor. So it was really interesting to see him in this role. The writers in this film. Peter Linkov. He worked on the new MacGyver. Garbage. The new Magnum P.I. Garbage. 
the new Hawaii Five-O, garbage. The only two things that I could find that he worked on that I even slightly approve of, besides this movie, I approve of this movie. La Femme Nikita, that aired on USA in the US, and Son-in-Law, starring Polly Shore. <laughs> I used to love Polly Shore movies. I really still like Son-in-Law. I think back, I'm just like, do I have a problem with this movie? I can't think of it. But I'm nervous, because I, like, I want to go back, and I want to watch Encino Man. I want to watch Son-in-Law, but I'm like, I don't know if Childhood Me could handle this, because Childhood Me loved these movies. When I was like looking up commentary and criticism of this movie, one of the things I found was apparently there is a book called Fight of the Dead by Istvan Nareer. And apparently like the plot of this book is really similar to this movie in particular. Oh, wow. Allegedly, there was like a trend of Hollywood coming to like European countries and looking at all their books and stuff and like basically stealing plots. And now I want to read this book. Well, one, I'm not surprised. Two, ah, it's cool. You can tell men wrote this movie. Well, should we talk about the romance? Oh my god, Anna, the romance. In this film, Sylvester Stallone was 47. I know. He's a mummy. And she's a beautiful, young cinnamon roll. He is 47 and she is 29. I have never thought Sylvester Stallone attractive. I am so sorry for those of you who do think he's attractive. We're all wrong. <laughs> no, I'm lying. <laughs> the age difference here is just like a blaring, this is what's wrong with Hollywood. We're still doing this shit. But this is so typical of Hollywood. They pair their action heroes. They go on and on and on until they are in their late 50s and 60s still playing roles in which they are much younger and then they are paired off with much 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 younger actresses chemistry zero between their characters and then there's a romance that we are forced fed because it is supposedly like this that all action heroes must get the girl and in the end of this movie even though sandra bullock yes she was interested in him Absolutely, she was. Her character was. But in the end, he just grabs her and then just kisses her, and that's it. That was the one thing in this movie that I really, really disliked. I do not like the romance in this movie at all. I was. I felt like I was forced this into my throat. That got graphic real quick. Yikes. <laughs> the movie didn't need it. it. It just felt like the romance was there so the men could write this weird, here's how sex works with these cool machines now. Not necessary. Again, I've been having this like debate recently with myself about the media I consume and how it handles like babies. So once again, in the future, they can freeze people and unthaw them and refreeze them and unthaw them. But apparently, women are still having babies the old-fashioned way. You can tell men wrote this movie. Lenina Huxley is a wonderful character. She is a beautiful cinnamon roll, too precious for this world. That's the literal de definition. It fits so well. Because she lives in this weird time, and it's not that she wants bad things to happen. It's just that she wants to be able to use her brain. And we get to watch a lady use her brain. So, yes, I was actually pretty impressed with her character overall. Yes, let's just forget the romance ever happened. Blocking it out. To start with, I actually thought she was his daughter. 
you know, that would have been so much more interesting. Apparently they filmed a bunch of stuff, like a whole storyline about his daughter and, and him meeting his daughter again after he was unthawed. But test audiences got mad because his daughter and Lenina Huxley were the same age and they felt really weird about the romance between Huxley and Spartan when his daughter was basically the same age. Maybe you should have kept the daughter thing and, and dropped the romance thing. But no, of course they kept the romance and dropped the daughter thing. Fuck man. You can tell men wrote this movie. During your live stream of your viewing of this film on Twitter, you made a comment going, I didn't know there were Jedi in this movie because Dr. Cocteau is dressed like a Jedi. He's totally dressed like a Jedi. What if Dr. Cocteau was part of the Jedi Order? Because, I mean, if we're talking about horrific utopian nightmares and the organizations within them, the Jedi Order totally fits. So what if Dr. Cocteau was actually a Jedi and he was too evil and the Jedi was like, mm, you know what, no. And he time-traveled to the past of Earth to take over California after a terrible earthquake destroyed everybody's lives. And thus we continue with our tradition of throwing shade at the Jedi. <laughs> it will never be not funny. I mean, that's my headcanon for where Dr. Cocteau came from. I love it. And then, obviously, he fails at it because he's a Jedi. You're welcome for that headcanon. I uh, worked really hard on it. <laughs> I Listen, I spent way too long on the IMDb page for this film learning things. The reason that they had these weird clothes was because in the 90s, we were having ozone problems. Men were like... In the future, we'll have ozone problems, so we need to have like cooler clothes that cover more of your body because the ozone will be thinner. And so that's where the costumes came from. So fashion changes to address climate change. At least they are admitting that there's some climate change and Earth stuff happening that's bad. At least they're not denying that there was a hole in the ozone layer. And thus, we continue our tradition of throwing shade at Donald Trump. <laughs> Except for Sandra Bullock, who wears a really diminutive dress. Climate change does not apply to young ladies. That dress was made of jewel like gems, and it was 40 pounds. Oh, God. You can tell men wrote this movie. <laughs> and thus continues our tradition of throwing shade at men. I did want to have a conversation with you. I think we've touched on this before when talking about media and history. In the film... Alfredo Garcia, played by Benjamin Bratt, who is baby-faced, he asks Spartan if he wants to listen to some oldies on the radio. And it, it turns out oldies actually means like old 1960s jingles for commercials. And then Lenina Huxley has all this stuff from the 20th century, like movie stuff, pop culture stuff. And it's clear that she can study history, but it seems like very selective. So there's this weird dissonance between the fact that they know history, it seems like, but there's a lot they just don't have access to or haven't looked at. Like, it's like their history has been selected for them. But all history is selective, right? Because we have this nostalgia for the 50s and the 60s. We watch movies with beautiful cars and we watch all of the Grease movies and Back to the Future and you have all of the nostalgia for 50 songs and ice creams and blah, 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 and ice cream parlors and Corvettes, etc. And make America great again. That is America of the 50s. And yet the 50s was terrible for a huge 
part of the population. Women, people of color, nostalgia is nothing less than filtered history. And it's exactly what this movie shows. That we tend to pick the things that we think are cool about the past and we just want to forget everything that is not. How do they think that they're in a beautiful utopian society where everything is controlled if they have access to history? Does it mean they don't have access to that history or they're literally ignoring it because they just don't like it and it's scary? I don't know. I think it's probably a little bit of both. I would say Dr. Cocteau probably deleted archives, selected history, because what she was talking about and what she was really in love with was more pieces of pop culture, really. She had access to historical files of police activity, though. She did, but those were fixed by the cryogenesis and the prison reform that Dr. Cocteau started. It is what it is. We, we forget history. I know we had this conversation before. We forget history. Everybody else does, but I'm just like, guys, read a book. Society forgets. Society forgets. It's just easier like this. <sighs> Listen, we are forgetting about Nazism. We are forgetting about fucking Nazism. How do you forget about fucking Nazism? They caught here in the UK a Nazi cell with a family who were supporting a number of terrorism activities, white extremist activities. When they entered their house, they found pictures of them dressed as both Nazis and members of Ku Klux Klan. Their son was named Adolf, their baby son. It's a young couple. In our days, we are forgetting about Nazism. It's the same thing with Handmaid's Tale. We had this conversation about that too. It's just too easy. Brazilians have now embraced this guy, this new president, forgetting the horrors, not only forgetting, but denying the horrors of the military governments that we had for 30 years in Brazil, in which people have been killed, tortured, disappeared, and they say those are untrue or that it wasn't that bad or a number of other things to allow them to sleep at night, I guess. This got real cheery real fast. I'm sorry, you asked. <laughs> it's true. It is terrifying. That really terrifies me that we can so easily forget things and move on to the next thing like the past doesn't exist. And this is why we keep repeating the same errors over and over again because we do forget. I have a related, but not exactly the same question. So as we've noted, this movie was written by men. Just just a couple of times. <laughs> Where they write their films outside the context of the rest of the world. This film's plot is like super self-contained. Like we don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. It's just contextless out there in the void. That's true to most dystopian movies and stories, though, right? Every time I read one of one, I was like, but where is everybody else? But my favorite dystopian story is like that. The most recent one, in fact, Station Eleven. She has the context. The context is there for that one. At least an American context, right? No, the whole world, because there are characters who are traveling. Have you not read Station Eleven? I haven't very recently. I don't remember now those details. Ah, your memory. I know. 
But this whole thing where there are no contexts outside the story and the plot bubble that they're in. Well, it's an action movie. It's just easier like this, right? But what do we think of that as a trope? Where we have a plot bubble where everything happens and there's no context for the outside world. Wow. That's a tough question. I guess it depends what I'm reading, what type of book or movie it is, and how much that is important. So, for example, in this action movie, I would wager that that has zero importance to me. They have a problem. Because if they use outside contacts, why would you defrost a random cop who took down this criminal from the 20th century instead of just, like, calling the National Guard? Because if you tried to call a National Guard, you'd have to deal with the outside contacts. So the plot only works in this, like, really specific way. But it's been a long time since I've, like, read some dystopia. Oh, I just read the Book of M, and it's actually worldwide. It's another another genre that tends to be very localized is the post-apocalyptic one, right? So zombies, blah, blah, blah. Because a good way of explaining it out is lack of communication. So the characters can't know what's happening everywhere else in the world because there's just no means of communication anymore. But in the book of M, you actually have characters from India, from all over the world, participating in the thick of things. I just find it very interesting that we get these action movies with the sci-fi twist, but the science fiction aspects only really works if it's inside a plot bubble. Mm -hmm. If you burst a plot bubble and bring in the rest of the world, it doesn't work. But I guess that only matters depending on the extent of your enjoyment of the plot bubble or whether you think that plot bubble should be exploded. I want to know other plot bubble science fiction books or movies. Would you say Jurassic Park is a plot bubble? No, because the outside context is there. They bring the outside context in. There there are point of view characters. Yeah, but what happens to the dinosaurs? You have to watch the sequel. (laughs) Another fun thing about this movie is that you can tell men wrote it because they get celebrity slash politician trivia right, but they get basic facts about salt wrong. There's that whole scene where Lenina Huxley goes, yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the president of the United States after the 61st constitutional amendment to the, Con- the United States Constitution. And I was like, wow, number one, these guys don't understand how constitutional amendments work. It was a different political time when apparently they just thought passing constitutional amendments was a breeze. Is the movie before or after Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of... Before. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, they got that right. But then they were, when they're at Taco Bell, the only remaining restaurant, which is actually part, which is actually the only point at which they burst the plot bubble, where they talk about the franchise wars and the only restaurant coming out of the franchise wars was Taco Bell. Worldwide, there was something that happened. Unless they think that the United States is just... The whole world. Also, could be. Americans are conceited. That's accurate. <laughs> but Lenina Huxley was like, salt's bad for you, so it's banned. It can't be banned because you need it to survive. Human beings need salt. You can't ban salt. This is basic science. You can tell men wrote this movie. <laughs> As I was watching the end, where Alfredo Garcia goes from fresh-faced cop to underground ally of Edgar Friendly, I remember how young me was like, Wow. Edgar Friendly and Alfredo Garcia are going to bang. 
I did not see that coming. Go rewatch like the end of the movie, right? After they meet Edgar Friendly underground. Edgar Friendly and Alfredo Garcia had more chemistry between them than <laughs> John Spartan and Alina Huxley. I was actually no shipping Garcia and Huxley. I thought they were so cute. They were cute. But no, not them. Edgar Friendly, Alfredo Garcia. Listen, go look at their scenes again. You will see what I see, I promise. Anna's like, no, Renee. This is not how this is going to work. No, I don't think so. I'm going to write that thing now. I really want to. I think you should at least check if there are any. There's not going to be. I'll go look, but it's probably all going to be like Lenina Huxley, John Spartan, thick. Oh, no. Let's not kink shame other fans, Anna. They might really like that relationship. I just find it a really extreme example of Hollywood being unable to conceptualize women who are older. Did you notice at the end where Simon Phoenix has collected all his, you know, allies from cryo prison? Did they defrost women criminals to have them look decorative? Probably. Were all the criminals black people and Latinos? Yeah, they were. Except for Benjamin Brown. The movie calls him specifically as Latinx, though. And a lot of the underground people as Latinx. Exactly. However, Wesley Snipes in this movie played Simon Phoenix. Wesley Snipes also played Blade. That's the same actor. You wouldn't know it because Wesley Snipes is an excellent actor. He took this role and he... Had so much fun. <laughs> Simon Phoenix is one of my favorite like villain characters because Wesley Snipes is so good in this role. And I mean, I guess Sylvester Stallone is okay, but he's kind of wooden. Well, yes. The most animated he ever got was when he was dissing knitting. I'm still bitter about that. These fucking riders. I'd like to see them knit a scarf. Look, they didn't even understand how knitting works. Because they just had John Spartan spit out a fucking sweater. That's not a night project. A scarf is a night project. It is a night project for John Spartan because he is knitting man. I just can't with the shade thrown at women's work in this film. No, it's terrible. They named the computer in the police station L7. It's an insult. Is it? You call somebody a square? Right, right, yes. I love this movie, but I have a lot of feelings about this movie. How many space bees would you give this? I would give it around three. It was fun. Yeah, I think I'm at a three, too. It's fun, but there are some issues. <laughs> hey, hey, listeners. Hey, listeners, guess what? Anna doesn't know how to use the three seashells. What the fuck is that? Do you know how? I'm sure there's a fan theory out there. Sylvester Stallone has stated in interviews that the idea behind the three seashells was that two were used like chopsticks and or to clamp together to pull waste out of the body, and the third was used to scrape what was left over. No explanation was made about how they were to be cleaned or sanitized between uses. That's Sylvester Stallone's brilliant theory about the three seashells. Oh my god. That makes no sense. And then later on down the page... According to screenwriter Daniel Waters, the inspiration for the three seashells came about when he was writing a scene where Spartan has to use a restroom. He was trying to come up with the futuristic things you'd find in there. He was having trouble, so he called a buddy, another screenwriter across town, asked him if he had any ideas. Ironically enough, that person was in the bathroom when he answered the phone. Number one, gross. Number two, what? <laughs> Looked around his bathroom and said, I have a bag of seashells on the toilet as a decoration. Waters said, okay, I'll make something out of that. And he literally did just that. No explanation, no context. You can tell a dude wrote this movie.
Our show is made possible by our patrons. Thanks to all our patrons at all pledge levels. So many people help make Fangirl Happy Hour what it is. We want to highlight our patrons at our $5 pledge level across each episode. So a huge thank you to Alicia, Amanda, Amy, Anne-Marie, and Brandy. To Claire, Dierbla, Elisa, Elisa M, and Hedwig, thank you. Thanks to Jen, Jocelyn, Karen, KJ, and Lara. And last but not least, thanks to Margot, Mark, Philip, and Transcendancing. We're grateful to all of you. Our show art is by Ira. Our music is by Chucky Beats and Boxcat Games. Our transcripts, which are Transcription Queen Susan makes for us with help from our patrons, are available at fangirlhappyhour.com. You can help choose future Vault episodes like this one by joining us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash fangirlhappyhour. Please read a history book. I do not care which one. Please be as brave as Renee. I just learned she can drive a truck and ride a horse. Mind blown. Enhance your calm, space bees. See you next episode. Be well. Okay, I'll drink some water because I got excited now because we talk about history. I hope you have enjoyed Demolition Man, but I hope you don't let it demolish your love for action movies. I think I was got so excited about Sylvester Stallone that I demolished my own voice. <laughs> <laughs>